The sermon texts for today are found in the book of Acts. The first reading is Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1655. Listen as I read God's word. On one occasion while he was eating with them, Jesus gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. The second reading is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. You know, it's uh, very, very rude and unfair to make a person cry before they have to preach. Thank you. Dina and I were just talking yesterday, actually, in the kitchen about um, how good we have it to be a part of this church family and to be able to do what we do and to give ourselves for this community and So we're just grateful for that. So thank you. As we come to this passage this morning, I want to invite you to bow with me for a word of prayer. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. God, we come before you this morning and we worship you as the exalted one. We worship you as 
the king of kings and as the king of all the nations. We worship you for your rule and your reign over not just the nations, but over all of creation. We ask that as we think about these verses today, that you would, by your spirit, that you would open our minds and open our eyes to see what there is in these passages for us. We pray that you would be with us now in a special and unique way through your spirit and that we would leave here today with a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We ask this all in his name. Amen. All people are evangelists in one way or another. Of course, we all are familiar with the religious version of evangelism. But the reality is that we are all evangelists. You might be an evangelist for your favorite sports team. I know I look out uh, many weeks and see a variety of different uh, swag from whether it's the Vikings or the Twins or even the Steelers is in the house this morning. Also, uh, the, the Packers who usually get booed when they're in the house. But, uh, but either way, uh, you represent your favorite sports team and in a way you are evangelizing on their behalf. We function as evangelists when we rave about our favorite artist or our favorite musician or our favorite band or we say things like, have you seen, and then fill in the blank with whatever the most recent uh, docu-series or television show you're watching is and you just can't wait to tell people about it. I don't know about you, but our neighborhood has lots of yard sign evangelism. Ranging from back the blue to BLM to everything in between, right? It's a form of evangelism. Every political ad that you've ever seen is an attempt to convert you, right? Sometimes it's, you know, telling you about a person and what they've done and why they're qualified for a position. And a lot of times, more recently, it's just basically criticizing someone else, saying if you vote for them, you're voting literally for the end of the world, (laughs) right? Every advertisement that we see, whether it's on you know, television or whether it's you know, somewhere in a YouTube video or whether it's on the radio, every single advertisement we hear is an attempt to convert us to someone's product and someone's service and someone's solution or someone's piece of technology or something like this, right? And the story in all of them is exactly the same. It is, you have a problem in your life. Maybe you don't even know what that problem is until we tell you what it is. But you have a problem in your life, and we have good news. We have a solution for that, right? It's not just religious people who share what they believe to be good news. It's not just religious people who attempt to convert others to their way of thinking or to their way of believing or to their way of viewing the world. All of us are evangelists in one way or another. That being said, sharing what we believe to be good news about Jesus... And praying that people receive that good news, that's like an explicit part of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. That's like baked into the cake of what it means to be his follower, is that we love people and we want them to know the best news that we have ever heard. And so we live as evangelists. We live as neighbors and witnesses. We've been in a series of messages here on Sunday mornings. Uh, We're in sort of the final few weeks of this thinking about our identity in Christ. And we've been sort of simplifying this down into three core identities. 
you know, there's a lot we could say about our identity in Christ, but we've just taken these three. We are sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters. We are neighbors and witnesses. Those aren't just things that we do. That is who we are. And of course, that has, you know, implications for how we behave. But it's first an identity that we receive as members of the family of God. And so this morning, we are going to be thinking about what it means to live as neighbors and witnesses. So as we think about this identity as neighbors and witnesses, I want to look at these two passages that you heard in the book of Acts. And I want to just make a couple observations. The first observation I'd like to make with you this morning is this. And and these two observations are likely, these are not going to be new for you. At least I'm hoping they won't be new for you. And uh, you may be saying, I've heard this before, and that's okay. It's good for us to be reminded of the same thing, and it's good for us to try and think about uh, things we've heard before in a fresh way. And so the first observation I want to make with you this morning about our identity as neighbors and witnesses is this. The gospel is good news for all people. The gospel, which is the announcement about what God has done for us in the person of Jesus, it is good news for all people. And we see that in these verses. Besides the Great Commission, which uh, many of you are familiar with, that's in the book of Matthew chapter 28, besides the Great Commission, these verses here in Acts chapter 1, specifically verse 8, is maybe the most well-known and most often quoted verse about living on mission in the entire Bible. And so you heard this read just a few moments ago, where Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, these place names, these cities of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, these regions can mean almost nothing to us until we see them on a map. And as we look at these on the map, we actually get a sense of what Jesus is doing by listing these specific places. What we see is that Jesus is giving us concentric circles of gospel impact. Okay, so if you look at the if you look at the map that's here, Jerusalem is right here in the center. Jerusalem was God's special city. This was the place where his presence dwelt in the temple. This is the the center of Jewish life in Jesus's day. This is the place to where um, people from all over the Roman world at the time came, uh, made pilgrimage, went to the city of Jerusalem for feasts and for festivals. This was the center of Jewish life in Jesus's day. And Jesus sends his disciples out into this place that is very, very familiar to them, a place where they would be very, very comfortable. But then secondly, he says, I'm not only sending you to Jerusalem, I'm sending you to Judea and Samaria. And so that's sort of the next ring out here that that you can think of that as like the suburbs, right? It's like the suburbs of, you know, Jerusalem. Uh, So think about it that way. And in the south here is the region of Judea. And then in the north is the region of Samaria. And Samaria, some of you may know this, that the Jews and the Samaritans hated one another. Because the Jews looked at the Samaritans as religious and cultural half-breeds. Because they had taken the Jewish faith and they had intermixed it with other religious practices and religious beliefs. And so the Jewish people looked at the Samaritans as compromised people. And there, there was not a great relationship between them. And so Jesus sends his disciples not only out into Jerusalem, this place that's comfortable and that's familiar with people that they would likely get along with, He also sends them out into Judea and to Samaria, a place with people that they despised, as a way of saying, I want you to know that I want my deliverance and my salvation to go forward, even to the people you think the world would be better without. 
I love those people too. And so we see it going out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and then finally to the ends of the earth, which is basically a, a way of saying etc., etc., etc. right? All the places that have not been yet mentioned, all the places that are out there besides Jerusalem and that sort of little ring of suburbs, you are being sent out into those places. And so we get this sort of picture here of the concentric circles of gospel impact, and what we see is the trajectory that Jesus is sending them on. He's sending them outward from what is comfortable, from what is familiar, to bring the message of the gospel, to bring the good news about what Jesus has done out to the nations. And as Jesus' disciples carry forward this mission, as they carry forward the mission to bring the, the, the good news about Jesus to the nations, what is happening is that God is reclaiming his rightful place as the God of the nations. As Jesus' followers go out and in the power of the Spirit announce the good news, and as people give their lives and their allegiance to Jesus, what's happening is that God is reclaiming his rightful place as the God of the nations. He's not becoming the God of the nations as if he wasn't already. He is reclaiming his rightful place as God of the nations. You heard this as I read Psalm 47 uh, before Uh, I prayed this morning. You can hear it in these verses. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. So all throughout the Psalms, we see this, this, uh, this picture. There's just no question that God is not just some tribal deity, Right? He's not just some tribal deity over the people of Israel or over this you know, land of Jerusalem. He is the God of the nations. And as the good news goes forward, God is reclaiming his rightful place as the God of the nations. So we see that in Psalm 47. We also see that in Pentecost. You may be wondering why we had those verses about the coming of the Spirit and, and all of that uh, read along with these verses. Because that also shows us when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, what's happening is that God is reclaiming his rightful place as God of the nations. So, I'm going to nerd out with you for a minute, okay? Pentecost is the reversal of an event in the Hebrew Bible. Pentecost is the reversal or the undoing of a, it's a thematic undoing of an event that happened in the Old Testament. Any guesses as to what it's the reversal of? Babel. Babel. Okay. That was quick. You guys are on top of this. I think it's important for us just to sort of look at these two things and, and see how this is actually the case. So in, in Babel, in the Old Testament, we see that God had created humanity and he said, multiply and fill the earth. And then we come to Genesis 11 which is, of course, after Genesis 3, where sin entered the world. And so people are uh, corrupted by sin and idolatry, and they're living in disobedience to God. And so what we see in Genesis 11 is that the nations are gathered together in one place. And they say, come, let us build a great tower, a great um, building, and then we will make a name for ourselves. Now, what they're building here, they're not building a skyscraper. Okay, that's maybe what we envision. They're not building like a high-rise apartment complex. What they're building is a ziggurat. And a ziggurat is essentially a pyramid. And at the top of it, uh, there's a high place. There's a place where you would offer sacrifices to the gods. 
And so part of what they're doing is they're saying, we are going to build this ziggurat, and this is the place where God is going to meet with us. They are living in such a way that they're saying, we are going to control God. And so they build this thing, and they say, we're going to make a name for ourselves, and God's going to have to meet us here. And as the nations are gathered at the Tower of Babel, God does come down, and what does he do? He scatters them out and scrambles their languages. Now all of a sudden, the languages that they speak are unintelligible to one another. So just get the picture here. At Babel, the nations are gathered all in one place, and their languages are unintelligible, or become unintelligible. Then fast forward the tape all the way to Acts chapter 2, and you've got the Spirit coming at Pentecost, where there's this group of disciples who are Galileans, largely, and the Spirit comes, and there's these sort of flames of fire that appear over their heads, and they begin to speak in other tongues. And your Bible should have a footnote that says, uh, you know, the word tongues. It means languages. And so notice what you see immediately after that in verse 5. Notice how once again the nations are gathered. Verse 5, now that we're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from where? Every nation under heaven. And then in verse 9, we get a list of all these places where these people came from. Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jew and convert from Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. So you get this whole list of like all these people who have come from the ends of the earth, from the ends of the known world at the time, and they are now gathered in Jerusalem. The nations are gathered, and as the Spirit comes, and they begin to speak in these other languages, what happens? Their languages become intelligible to one another. All of a sudden, you've got these, these Galilean people, right? These people are not from a, like, metropolitan, like, multilingual, multi-ethnic area, <laughs> They're from a largely Jewish Galilean area that's fairly homogeneous. And all of a sudden, these guys are beginning to speak in other languages. It's like they, they were going to speak their language, like I'm speaking now, and what comes out is a different language that they didn't know how to speak. And this is just like crazy. And the people around them think this is absolutely crazy because they start saying things like, uh, these guys are like... Not a little bit too much to drink already. You know, it's nine in the morning, but obviously they're drunk because, like, you know, their language is slurred and unintelligible to us. So what other explanation could there be except for they're just really drunk? And then notice what happens is that Peter stands up and preaches this sermon. And it says that 3,000 people came to know and follow Jesus. Those 3,000 people who were there were gathered from all the nations into Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Pentecost, which was a Jewish festival. And so all these people from the ends of the earth come into Jerusalem, and as the nations are gathered, their languages become unscrambled, and the Spirit enables them to hear and speak in languages so that they can now talk to each other and and understand each other. And so what we see here is this picture that God's judgment that he brought on the nations at Babel is turned into salvation by the presence of the Spirit. As the Holy Spirit comes, we see a reversal of what happens at Babel. We see God's salvation extended 
to these 3,000 people who are from the nations of the earth. And so what's happening is that God is reclaiming his rightful place as God of the nations. That's what's happening at Pentecost. That's what's happening as Jesus sends his disciples out to live on mission and to announce the good news is that God himself is reclaiming his rightful place as God of the nations. What's astonishing is that God uses us in that process. What's astonishing is that God uses people who have all of the faults that we have, all of the the fears and the insecurities that we have, all the ways that we you know, sometimes live in just like total disobedience where we see a spiritual conversation that has come up and we just like run for the hills because we're not sure what to say, we're not sure what to do, we don't want to make it awkward and so it's like, we're just going to like course correct on this thing, right? And so all of, all of the, the messiness of who we are, God uses us, not as his plan B, not because he doesn't have a better method, God uses us as his plan A to bring the message of his deliverance to the nations. God, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been, you know, better, more effective for God to use dreams and visions and angels and things like that instead of us? Probably, yes. The answer is not probably. The answer is like 100% for sure, yes. It would have been better for God to do it that way. And yet in his sovereign goodness, God chooses, God chose to bring the message of his salvation to the nations through people like us. The gospel is good news for all people. The second observation that we should make this morning from these verses is this. The spirit is the one who empowers our witness. Not only is the gospel the good, good news for all people, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers our witness. We see it again in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And the result of that is, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the Spirit is the source of power for the mission. I've enjoyed watching a show called Forged in Fire. Has anyone ever seen the show or heard of it? Okay, a couple of you. <laughs> I see some people with big smiles on their faces, so <laughs> that's good. Uh, it's a great show. It's a show where uh, contestants come into a forge. They're blacksmiths, most of them, and they have to, they're given an assignment by a panel of judges to make uh, certain kinds of weapons, to make knives or swords or axes or like all kinds of crazy stuff. And so how this happens, if you know anything about blacksmithing, you know that in order to make a sword out of like a chunk of metal that's really hard, is you have to put that chunk of metal in fire, and you get it heated up so that it's soft, and then you take a hammer and you just beat it. And you, you can, you know, thin it out, and you can put it in a shape, and you can do all that stuff, right? And so every single one of these contestants that comes on the show comes on with a hammer, and not like a little, you know, tink, 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 ball, ball peen hammer. We're talking about like a hammer, right? Like a, you know, sometimes five or seven pound sledgehammer with a short, you know, short handle that you just wield like this. And that's how you take a chunk of metal that is like this. It's called your billet. You take it and you get to spread it out and thin it out by using that hammer. So everyone comes on the set with one of those handheld hammers. But of course, we live in the age of modern technology, 
And so on, uh, on the show, in the forge, there's this thing everyone calls Big Blue because it's big and it's blue. It's a hydraulic hammer press, and it's awesome. <laughs> you know, you, you take your billet and you stick it on the little anvil and you push down with your foot and this big hammer goes like this and just beats the thing. And if you're not careful, like it, you know, gets too thin and whatever because it's so powerful. And so you've got this, this power hammer that enables you to do essentially the same thing, just better. You can do essentially the same thing, just a little bit faster. I think it's easy for us to functionally live as if the spirit is like the power hammer of life on mission. I think it's easy for us to fall into the trap of believing that the spirit's presence and power is like a level up on our own natural abilities. We'd say, you know, sure, it's better if the Spirit's at work in my sharing the gospel. But, like, I can do something without the power of the Spirit, right? There's something that can be accomplished, even if I'm doing this in my own strength. And the reality is that that is simply not true. The Spirit doesn't just give us a boost when we've reached the end of our own natural abilities. You know, like, okay, Spirit, I've taken it as far as I can. Now, you gotta, you, you know, you got to take it the rest of the way. No, we can have all of the evangelistic techniques and tricks and we can have all the right answers and have all the right, you know, apologetics and the right arguments and we can be knowledgeable, we can be culturally and relationally winsome and savvy and all of those things. And if the Holy Spirit is not empowering it, those things will produce zero lasting spiritual fruit. It is the presence of the Spirit who is the one who enables and who empowers our witness And so when we see where that power comes from, that totally changes the way that we engage in spiritual conversation. That totally changes the way that we live on mission together. What it means is that we now have a posture of humility, right? Where where we just like recognize uh, the power doesn't come from me. The power doesn't come from my abilities. It doesn't come from my uh, efforts, any of that. The Spirit is the only one who can cause a person to become alive to the things of God. The Spirit is the only one who can lead someone into the life-giving way of Jesus. That's not our job. We can't do it. And so we come to living as neighbors and witnesses with a posture of humility, recognizing the power doesn't come from us. But on the other side of that, we also come with a posture of confidence too, right? We have a confident humility because we recognize like, okay, I can't do this, but God can. We go out into our spheres of influence, the places we live, work, learn, and play. We go out to live as neighbors and witnesses, knowing that it's God's plan A to use us. And so there's a level of confidence where we say, okay, uh, this may not make a whole lot of sense to me, but this is the way that God has designed it. And so now, because I know that God has, in his wisdom, not mine, chosen to use me in this process, that means that I go into all these spiritual conversations I might have saying, I can't do this, but I know the one who can. I can't create spiritual life. I can't create spiritual fruit, but I know who can. And this conversation I'm about to have with this person or this conversation that I'm having with this person might be the conversation that completely changes this person's life. 
This might be a conversation that completely revolutionizes this person's family tree from this moment on. And you know what it has nothing to do with? My own power and my own ability. God is the one who does it. And so we have this kind of like humility where we're like, man, this is not about me. It's not up to me. And so we go in there with like a, a prayerful dependence upon God the Spirit to do what only God the Spirit can do. And we have a confidence to say, he can do it. And so it gives us a kind of confidence to be able to step into conversations that are otherwise impossible without the Spirit at work. We have a posture of humility and a posture of confidence because it's the Spirit who empowers our witness. There's so many benefits for us being members of God's family. We could go around the room right now and we could make a big list. We could whiteboard all the different benefits that there are to being uh, a part of God's family. And there certainly are many. And it's not just about us. Right? Like, it's good for us to receive the blessings and the abundance and the provision of God. Absolutely. We should receive that. We should enjoy it. We should worship God for those things. And it's not just about us. God did not save us into his family so that we could just receive, but so that through us, he could bring his blessing and his abundance and his provision to all people. And so the reality is that we are a sent people. We exist not just for ourselves. We exist for the people who are not yet members of the body of Christ. We exist not just for ourselves, not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of those who are not yet followers of Jesus. This is what Jesus said to his disciples in John 17. They're in the upper room on the night before Jesus is executed, and Jesus is praying, and he says to the Father, just as you have sent me, so I send them. And so what we have to see, what we have to remember as we go out to live as neighbors and witnesses is that we go because Jesus went. In other words, we don't go out and live on mission and seek to live as neighbors and witnesses and seek to lead people into the life-giving way of Jesus because we're trying to earn something, because we want God to be impressed with us, because we're trying to earn God's love or his favor. We don't go out to do any of that, to earn anything, because in Jesus, God has already given us everything we need. Which means that when we go out to live as neighbors and witnesses, we go out as a joyful response to what Jesus has already done for us. Right? We go out as a joyful response to seeing God so loved the world that he gave us his son. And not only was it the father's plan to send the son, and as it says in uh, Isaiah 53, it was Yahweh's will to crush the servant. And Jesus willingly went. Jesus didn't grit his teeth and say, well, I guess if I have to go to these people, you know, I'll do it. Jesus willingly and joyfully left the riches and the worship of heaven in order to take on human flesh and to accompany us in our humanity and to, he did so knowing that it would cost him his life. He did so knowing what it would cost him in the suffering and in his death. And he chose to do it anyways because he saw us in our desperate condition. Right? He saw us 
in our lives that have been ravaged by the presence and the power of sin. And you've seen what idolatry and willfulness and disobedience and pridefulness has done to us. He sees us in that desperate condition and he has compassion on us. His heart overflows with love towards us and Jesus came near to us. The good news of the gospel is not if you do all these things, God will then love you. The good news is God loved you by sending you his son. He came near to you. He doesn't expect you to clean up your act and come close to him. He came near to you. He saw you in your desperate condition. He saw you enslaved to sin and death and the evil one. And he came near to announce the good news to you. And so what that means is that we then go out into all these spheres of our life saying, okay, if that's what God has done for me, I want to have a life that in some way reflects the God who loves me. And if he saw me in my desperate condition and he loved me enough to draw near, that means we look at all the people in our spheres of influence, those places we live and work and learn and play, we look at all those people and our hearts are filled with compassion for them. We look at those folks and we see our our friends and our neighbors who don't yet know Jesus and we see them in the, the desperate condition that they're in apart from Jesus and we love them enough to, in helpful and in appropriate ways, right, share the good news about Jesus because that's what God has done for us. And so that is the motivation for us as we go out on mission. We don't go out on mission. We don't live as neighbors and witnesses because we're trying to gain something or earn something. We do so as a joyful response to what Jesus has already done for us. So we go out into these spheres of influence, knowing that the power does not come from us, but that he uses even us to bring the good news about Jesus to all people. Each week we come to the communion table and we receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, which is the clearest demonstration of God's love for us, that he saw us. He had compassion on us. He came near to us and announced the good news. And so as we come forward to receive communion today, we are affirming once again our love for, our trust in Jesus. And as we take communion over and over and over again, week after week after week, and we see how God sent us his son that ought to shape us into the kind of people that say, if God has done this for me, what else can I do except go out into those spheres of life and live as a neighbor and live as a witness? So we get to come and receive uh, Jesus at the table today. And so as we do Each week, I'm going to invite you to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection, and then we will come and celebrate Christ together at the table.